Chapter Two of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Case. The Wife of the Secretary of State, by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter Two. Although the dissipated moon had sunk low in the heavens. It was not too far gone to keep an eye upon the affairs of earth. The moon cherished a belief, the result of many centuries of observation, that mankind was very similar the world over, but it liked to keep watch nevertheless. Consequently, it pursued Count Vladimir as he parted from Monsieur Dupre at the door of the alibi and hailed a passing hansom, and when he drove swiftly away, it still followed curiously. The Potomac shimmered and glittered as the moon looked at it, and the Virginia hills rose dark and indistinct against the horizon. Under the long bridge, however, the river crawled black and sullen, washing against its supports with a steady, cold persistence. On one side of the bridge lay Washington, with its stately buildings and broad avenues. Washington, the seat of government, the nucleus of law and order. On the other lay Jackson City with its squalid hovels and muddy road. Jackson City, the seat of wickedness, the germ of lawlessness and disorder. Between the two flowed the Potomac, and the bridge connected them. It was late, even for Jackson City, and in one of the small gambling saloons only the proprietor and a solitary guest remained. The host was frankly and tearfully drunk. The visitor was coldly and disgustingly sober. Now attend, he said sharply, bringing out his words with a stinging emphasis not unlike the snap of a whip. I'm a poor man, whined the proprietor, clutching a pile of dirty notes and coins which lay upon the table. A very poor man. I work for my living. The hand which snatched at the money was long and shapely. It had once been well cared for, too. And even now, shaking and grimy as it was, suggested the hand of a gentleman. The face and figure were those of a man grown old in dissipation and poisoned with the dredges of life, a man sunk to the level of his surroundings. Yet at times an indefinable air of birth and breeding asserted itself and demanded recognition. As though to illustrate what nature had intended to create, before man interfered and spoiled her handiwork. And I am here to give you money, said the guest imperturbably. I see you are not too drunk to understand that. Do you know me? Yes, said the other, raising his head suddenly. Yes, Count Vladimir, I know you well. And I also, returned Count Vladimir, whose identity had thus far been ingeniously veiled, have the pleasure of knowing you intimately, Colonel Albert St. John. The coins rattled in the trembling hand, and one or two fell unnoticed to the floor. You are not without fame, Colonel, resumed Count Vladimir politely, his eyes contracting strangely. The police of several countries would be glad to be informed of your whereabouts. It was quite a coincidence that you should have been standing in your doorway the day I chanced to ride by. My memory for faces is excellent, 
and I am accustomed to meeting people in unexpected places. Therefore I recognized you at once. An inarticulate snarl was the only reply. In Germany, continued Count Vladimir, holding up his hand and checking the different countries on his fingers, in France and in England you are anxiously expected. Also in Russia. The partly sobered man endeavored to collect himself. What do you want? he asked, with a sort of grim courage. You did not come here tonight to warn me that you meant to inform upon me. Count Vladimir glanced about the dingy room, with an array of unwashed glasses and dirty floor, and shrugged his shoulders expressively. The last time I had the pleasure of talking with you was in Berlin, he said reflectively. The saloon was undoubtedly larger, and the lights perhaps more brilliant. Also your dress was then immaculate. But your occupation was much the same. I presume you have, as usual, neglected the formality of a license. I raise chickens, interrupted the other hurriedly. A license is not required. Just so, said Count Vladimir suavely. You raise chickens, of course. A strange occupation for Colonel Albert St. John, is it not? Colonel St. John collapsed suddenly into his chair. His few minutes of sobriety vanished, and his chin quivering miserably. I'm a poor man, he repeated, his voice returning to its habitual whine. A very poor man. I must live. A lamp flickered and went out. The air was fetid with kerosene and stale tobacco, and heat radiated visibly from the airtight stove now red-hot at its base. Living arrangements in Jackson City were strangely primitive, considering its location. Count Vladimir flung open the door and raised the window, regardless of a faint protest from his companion. Bah! he exclaimed. No wonder you are stupid. It is the atmosphere. Now listen, Colonel St. John. He paused suddenly. By the way, he resumed slowly, in which army do you hold your commission? You used to serve the country that paid the highest price, and served it well, too. My compliments to you, Colonel. You are at times invaluable to me, and I rejoice to have discovered your retreat, although I still believe you the greatest rascal unhung. It is a pity you should have descended to this. That unfortunate contretemps at Berlin was the beginning of your ill luck, was it not? You lived in a good deal of luxury there, I remember. You and your daughter? The chill air from the river came in the window and ruffled the gray hair of the sodden heap of humanity huddled in the chair beside the table. What do you want me to do? he said dully, passing his hand across his brow. You must speak plainly for my head is heavy tonight. But Count Vladimir did not reply at once. He waited until the cold night wind had done its work more effectually. Colonel St. John, he said at last, leaning forward and speaking very slowly, where is your daughter? The old man made a gesture as though he would ward off a blow. You don't like to speak of her? Well, one can hardly wonder. You decamped in the night from Paris, I believe, leaving her alone and without money. It was a most fatherly act. 
Also, she was to bear the consequences when the police arrived. What became of her? How should I know, returned the other sullenly. How should I know? True, agreed Count Vladimir politely. How should you? It may, however, interest you to learn that Lyndhurst is in town. In Washington? Even so. He is attached to the British Embassy and has just arrived. I fancy he still remembers. Men of his type do not easily forget. Young Hertford was his cousin. He paid his debts and sent his body home to his mother. It was Lyndhurst who hunted you down at Paris. She did it, muttered this model father. It was her work, not mine. Let him look for her. And who taught her the trade she followed? Who forced her to use her youth and beauty to decoy men to your house that you might fleece them? Who encouraged her to lure them on to love her and perhaps confide in her, while she in turn betrayed their confidence to you? No doubt she was an apt pupil, but who instilled the rudiments of treachery and deceit into her mind before she could speak plainly? A clock in the next room struck three, rattling out the time like a series of small explosions. I must reluctantly tear myself away, he continued regretfully. Your secret, as well as your existence, is safe with me, Colonel St. John. Not even Lyndhurst shall suspect it as long as you perform an occasional trifling service for me, for which you will be well paid. Now attend carefully to what I say. He spoke slowly and emphatically for some minutes, while the old man listened with a strained intentness painful to witness. I am not what I once was, he interrupted at last, deprecatingly. My hand shakes. I cannot trust it. And my nerve fails me when I least expect it. Count Vladimir made an imperative gesture commanding silence and proceeded with his instructions. Now understand, he concluded sternly, I hold your safety, perhaps your life, in my keeping. You pay a heavy penalty for failure. Therefore, be careful. I understand, repeated the other mechanically. Then I will not detain you further. I shall return before very long. It is almost time to feed your chickens, Colonel. Good night, or rather, good morning. Entering the waiting hansom, he drove rapidly away towards Washington without a backward glance. The old man stood in the door and watched the retreating vehicle, which looked strangely black and misshapen in the uncertain light. As the echo of the quick trot upon the bridge grew less distinct, he clenched his hand tightly, and raising his trembling fist shook it in the empty air. Returning to the house, he closed the window and, sinking into a chair, succumbed to the physical collapse inevitable to a man of his type after strong mental excitement. His head fell forward on his breast, and he breathed heavily, his brow moist and clammy with beads of cold perspiration standing out upon it. A delicious sense of oblivion enveloped him, and his body surged forward dangerously. Colonel St. John was asleep. Asleep with his gray head upon the notched and rickety table, and with the little heap of ill-gained money forgotten and unnoticed. Suddenly his face softened, and a singularly sweet smile changed its whole expression. 
"'My dear,' he said in a full, cultivated voice, stretching out his hand appealingly, "'you look remarkably well tonight. That gown suits you to perfection.' Colonel St. John was dreaming. Count Vladimir dismissed his hansom and inserted his latchkey in the door of his apartment. He was thoroughly chilled by his drive across the Potomac, and the sight of an armchair by the grate where the coal still glowed was not unattractive. A table within easy reach held matches and cigars, also a decanter and a small glass. His valet knew his business thoroughly and had been with him a long time. Rapidly getting into smoking jacket and slippers, he sank luxuriously into the depths of the chair, selected a cigar, and proceeded to carefully review the events of the past few hours. The fire glowed and faded, the moon disappeared entirely, and the wheels of enterprising milk carts rattled loudly in the street below before he rose and stretched himself wearily. "'A good night's work,' he remarked, yawning. Filling the slender-stemmed glass, he held it critically towards the light. "'To Mrs. Redmond,' he exclaimed as he put it to his lips, "'to Mrs. Redmond, the wife of the Secretary of State.' A slight crash followed, and the fragments of the little glass mingled with the ashes on the hearth. End of chapter 2